by its cover. And the reason that writers tend to do this, tend to discourage cliches, is that these turns of phrase, which at one time provided a vivid mental picture of an idea or a concept or even a moral lesson, over time, when we use these phrases over and over again, they don't evoke the same emotional response. In fact, um, not to pick on Elder Doug, but I had it written down here, and we used one this morning, and that is the calm before the storm. I think it's a good example. And I don't know who originated this phrase, where it came from, but you have to imagine that the sailors who may have invented this phrase back in the day, the calm before the storm, knew what dread and fear and unease they would have had in that time before a real storm. To us, or at least to those of us who aren't sailors, we tend to understand the idea behind this phrase, but we use it casually. We throw it around, like to describe the let-up of work in a very secure office environment, without any of the weightiness that a sailor might have used it to describe an actual life-and-death situation. Now, I know you didn't come here this morning for a literary lesson, and you certainly would not have come to hear me if you were going to have a literary lesson. But the reason I'm bringing up this point is that repetition of language, I think, poses a universal human problem. And the problem is that our minds are stimulated by newness, by original ideas, by new concepts and phrases. And cliches, over time, lose their power precisely because of their familiarity. Now, the reason this is a problem for us as Christians is that the tenets of our faith and some of the practices of our faith as believers are things that are settled and are not new. We as Christians are called to engage in practices that we repeat over and over again, and that, like cliches, if we are not careful, can lose their significance. One of these practices that we are called to engage in as Christians, and the one that we're going to be looking at this morning, is prayer. And so if you're able, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, to what is probably a very familiar passage. In fact, um, we collectively prayed this passage this morning. So if you look at Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 9. These are the words of Jesus. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to learn to pray better. Let our words, both corporately when we come together as a congregation each week, but also individually when we come before you throughout our days, help these words to truly exalt your sovereignty and glory and help us to convey our actual needs and fears and concerns as well. Help us to pray as you intended for us to pray. For we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, I started out talking about the danger of cliches, of phrases that we repeat from time again, time and time again, and over time, these phrases lose their potency. And I think when we come to the subject of prayer, and especially the Lord's Prayer in particular, we're in danger of 
falling into this trap of repeating words without actually praying. And that's why that when Jesus introduced this passage that we just read, if you go back a few verses, he says that prayer and this prayer that he's going to give us is not something that we're supposed to repeat mindlessly. This is not an incantation. It's not a magic spell. It's not as though you just repeat these words and voila, all your cares and concerns instantly disappear. And that's the point of what Jesus says when he's introducing this passage. If you look back at verse 7 in Matthew chapter 6, and let me give you a few different Bible translations that help convey the point. The New International Version says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. The English Standard Version says, do not heap up empty phrases. The New King James Version, do not use vain repetitions. The New American Standard Bible says, do not use thoughtless repetition. And I think you get the point. Um, Babbling, empty phrases, vain repetitions, thoughtless repetition. Even before we look at the words of the Lord's Prayer, it's important to begin with this context because what Jesus is telling us about prayer is something that it is not, and that is, it's not simply a recitation of words. It's not a formula through which we get God to do what we ask for. But I want to make one other observation before we dive into the text, and that is that when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we shouldn't assume that we have nothing to learn. And let me repeat that point because I think it's very important. We shouldn't assume that we know how to pray. Now, this um, probably sounds counterintuitive, um, especially for those of us here. We're, We're in church. If you believe in Jesus, hopefully you pray regularly. Um, Those who go to church, whether they believe or not, regularly encounter prayer. And even outside the church, prayer is not something that's foreign to our society or to our culture. You know, we were watching a kid's movie recently. Some of you may have seen it, Over the Hedge. And it's about a raccoon's efforts to stockpile food um, to feed a hungry bear. And this raccoon lives on the outskirts of a suburban development. And some of the most comedic parts in the movie are about the raccoon's perception of the relationship between people and food in suburban America. One of the scenes in particular cuts to a scene of a family saying grace around a meal. And what you hear, the voiceover you hear as you see this scene, is of the raccoon saying that people in modern America love their food so much that they pray to it. Which, of course, isn't the case, but the line often gets laughs in the movie because we all understand what prayer is about, right? We understand how to recognize it, we understand what it's supposed to look at, look like, we know what prayer is supposed to do. And this shouldn't be a surprise, I think, to any of us here. Prayer has been around for thousands of years. If you look back at the very earliest biblical accounts, we're introduced to this, this concept of prayer, and we know that from extra-biblical accounts that, that prayer, this practice of prayer, spread to other peoples and other cultures as well. And so, you wouldn't be far off from asking, or you wouldn't be out of rights in asking, why we should consider that we might not know how to pray. Well, for starters, let me submit to you that the reasons we give for understanding what prayer is, that we're surrounded by it, that we've grown up in a culture, whether Christian culture or contemporary popular culture um, that talks about prayer, these reasons for understanding what prayer is, uh, frankly, aren't terribly unique or persuasive. And the reason I say this is that compared to our culture, if you look back at the culture of the first century Judaism, 
That culture was far more religious. If you read the New Testament, if you read about the people who lived in that time, or if you read historical works uh, from that, that time period, you'll see that that culture embraced religious practices, including things like prayer, with an ardor and a seriousness that is lacking, certainly in American culture, but often in the church as well. And yet, despite people growing up in this culture in the first century, when we read the Bible, we read about followers of Jesus, and actually prior to Jesus, followers of John the Baptist, who did not assume that they knew how to pray. The, the Gospel writer Luke records that John the Baptist's followers uh, were taught by John the Baptist about how to pray. Even though they had grown up in this culture, um, they were taught how to pray. And Luke records that Jesus' followers, in turn, went to Jesus and asked him to teach them how they ought to pray, which is, again, a curiosity if you imagine people growing up in this culture, being surrounded by prayer, and they go to Jesus, they ask him how they should pray. And instead of rebuffing them or um, telling them that everyone knows how to pray, Jesus um, gives them the specific pattern of prayer to follow. And so, as we study this text this morning, it's important for us to step back and think about what Jesus is telling us, to consider that maybe although we've grown up around prayer, that there may still be something uh, for us to learn in what Jesus is telling us. This morning, I want us to focus only on the first part of this prayer, because if we were going to unpack the entire prayer, I think it would require at least a sermon series. And the part that I want us to consider this morning is that very first line, our Father in heaven. Now, because we pray this every week, I think we are in danger of losing a sense of just what this phrase means, our Father in heaven. And the first thing I want us to notice is the word by which we are called to address God, and that is Father. Now, friends, this is really striking, but it's striking in a way that I think we often overlook, because if you read through the Bible, you can find literally hundreds of names for God, and each one of these names of God reveals a facet of his character. Because God is omnipotent, because he is far greater than we are, our language and our understanding is too limited to grasp the full extent of who he is, of his complete nature. And so when we use a name for God, we are describing part of his character. In the opening pages of Scripture, for example, we're introduced to Elohim, to the God who in the beginning creates the heavens and the earth. And one commentator um, puts this definition of God as Elohim as a transcendent being who exercises extraordinary control in human affairs. And we see this depiction of God as Elohim frequently in the pages of Scripture. In fact, there are more than 2,000 references to God as Elohim in the Scriptures. But even more frequent than Elohim is God as Yahweh, which is the most frequent name for God in the Old Testament. There are about 6,500 references to God as Yahweh. And Yahweh, like Elohim, also speaks to God's lordship, to his omnipotence, to his mastery over all things. But Yahweh introduces a new characteristic about God, and that is a certain nearness between God and his covenant people. In the Ten Commandments, for example, we're commanded that you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
And the Lord who will not hold anyone guiltless, this Lord, is Yahweh. And so he's still God. He's someone to be feared and exalted. But he's also someone who is personally connected to each one of us and how we revere and how we exalt him. And that's why we are commanded to not misuse the name of the Lord. But beyond these two common expressions for God in the Old Testament, behind um, Elohim and Yahweh, we're introduced to a number of other names of God, um, each of which, again, reveals something about his character. For example, God reveals himself as El Shaddai, or the one who provides for the needs of his people. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, the one who promised the Israelites to keep them safe from the diseases that had afflicted the Egyptians if they would follow him. He is El Elyon, or the Most High God, the one to whom Melchizedek provided his offering. And we could spend a lot of time studying the various names of God, and I would encourage you to do that. But what I think is important when we come to the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus does not call for us to use one of these names of God when we address him. Not Elohim, not Yahweh, not any of the others that we see in the Old Testament. And instead, what he instructs us to use is our Father. And this appellation, Father, denotes a familiarity, a familial connection, a new level of closeness and kinship that can come only through the Son's mediation. In the Old Testament, believers approached God from a distance as Elohim or Yahweh through the intermediation of the high priest and the Holy of Holies. After Jesus' coming, we can not only approach God directly, but we can address him as Father. Now, fathers are something that each of us can relate to to some extent, right? Because each of us has had one. And even if we didn't know that person very well or at all, we've seen fathers and other families around us. But sometimes this familiarity with fathers can cloud our understanding because each of our fathers, all the fathers we've known in this world, have been fallen. Each of these fathers did not live up to the archetype of God our Father. Some were better, some were worse, but certainly none were perfect. During his ministry, Jesus told several stories about fathers, about what a good father looks like, of how we ought to think about the fatherly role. I think one of the most familiar is the parable about the prodigal son, and you all know the story. It's a story about a man who has two sons. One takes his inheritance, goes away, squanders it. He eventually returns home and is welcomed back into the family. And when we hear this parable, we often focus on the son, and I think that's, that's correct and right. But it's worth looking at the father as well, because here was a man who was generous in truly a profound way. We often gloss over it when we read the story, but I want you to put yourself in his shoes because we know what inheritance looks like. We know what inheritance is supposed to operate as. It comes to a person after the parent is deceased in most cases, and yet in this story we hear about this son, the audacity really, the temerity with which he approaches his father and says, give me my share of the estate. And instead of rebuffing his son or telling him to wait, the father in this story promptly and without misgivings or resentment divides his property and gives his son a sizable amount of property. 
Later, of course, this same father welcomes this son back after he has squandered this inheritance. He welcomes him back without recrimination or accusation or rebuke. But note something else. He doesn't just welcome the prodigal son. The other son, the the quote-unquote good son, the one who didn't squander his wealth, is livid about the father's actions. And what does this father do? Well, the, the condition of the sons is different, certainly. But the father's love, his patience, his initiative, his proactiveness is really the same. This father to the second son leaves the feast, He goes out to where he's sulking, and he entreats him to return to the family, to be restored. The attitude of the father is consistent, even though the failings of the sons are quite different. Jesus uses similar character traits when he tells a second story about a father who is a king who prepares a lavish banquet for his son. And in this story, we get a sense again of the generosity and initiative of this father. Not only does he prepare this extensive feast, but he also is insistent that the banquet hall be filled and that it be filled with guests who are worthy of his son. Again, the focus in the story is about the guest who came who wasn't properly dressed for the occasion, but we shouldn't overlook the character of the father in this story. His liberality, his evident care for his son, And in the story, we don't even get the sense that the son asked for these things, that the son requested this feast or requested that the guests be of a certain character. We just get the sense that the father does this on his own accord, out of his love for his son. Jesus tells a third story that includes a father, and this one is a bit more tragic because it entails a father who moves away, who leases his property to some renters, and these renters refuse to pay and end up killing those who are sent to collect rent. And out of desperation, this father decides what to do. He decides he's going to send his son, not because he thinks his son will be in any danger. In fact, it's because he believes that his son is of such a high stature, is so worthy of respect, that even these ruffians, these murderers, will still respect his son. He believes that the worst of mankind will change their behavior in his presence. Now, these are parables. These are stories that Jesus told us to teach us spiritual lessons. And I think there's um, a danger. We have to be not thoughtless um, in attributing the traits of individuals in these stories to God. But when we look at the fathers in these parables of Jesus, I think we get a better sense of why Jesus told us to address God as our Father. When we pray our Father, we should not think of the failures of our own fathers or our own failures if we're in this role. But we should recall some of the attributes that Jesus has revealed to us about his Father. The profound and costly, the proactive love that the Father showed to the prodigal son and to his brother. The lavishness, the insistence upon the best that the king showed towards his son, the prince the pride and confidence that the owner of the vineyard had towards his son because he was his son. Brothers and sisters, this is what our Father is like. When you pray our Father, take a moment to reflect on what you are saying. This isn't merely an address. It's not merely a salutation. 
It's a profession. It's a declaration of who we are coming to. What follows what we typically think of as as our prayers, what we're going to ask for? All of this should be framed by the fact that we are calling upon a Father who, in fact, is more generous and more proactive and more loving than we even realize as we come to him in prayer. Even before we get to our asks, we ought to pause and recognize that we can never ask for enough, that his love for us is beyond our imagination. This is what our Father means. But Jesus instructs us to pray to our Father in heaven, and this second part, this modifier, in heaven, tells us something about our Father that is incredibly important and comforting. Let me put it this way. If our Father speaks to God's nearness and his love for us, in heaven depicts his ability to care for us. And heaven is not a geographic location or an address. It speaks to God's ability to care for us. I'd like to give an analogy that I think in sort of an inverse way um, explains to us what in heaven is supposed to communicate. When I was in graduate school, I took a course in counterterrorism. And when you study that topic, when you study about counterterrorism analysis, one of the things that you learn fairly quickly is that Counterterrorism analysts look at two things in assessing the threat of a group. They look at a group's intention and a group's capability. So a group may um, intend to target a country like the United States or may intend to target other countries and may not pose a threat to the United States. And a group may have the capability to do so or may not have the capability to do so. And so you get a sense of the threat of a group by looking at these two factors, intent and capability. Now, I said this was sort of an inverse analogy, but I'm using it because I think we quickly grasp this concept, intent and capability, when we think about it in this context. And even though we may not articulate it frequently, we often choose to believe someone based on their intent and their capability. Let me use it in another context. When we hear a politician make a promise, we frequently hear it with jaded ear precisely because we distrust, I would submit, either that person's intent or their capability, right? Um, someone may say something and we say, well, that person's just saying that because they think they're going to get votes. That's not what that person actually intends to do. Perhaps less frequently, we hear someone say something, we say, that's great, we actually support what that person says, but we don't think that person can actually do what they promise. They're going to be outvoted. They're going to be in the minority. They may not get elected. And so we choose to believe someone based on their intent and their capability. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, I think, is instructing us to use this two-part description of God to focus on both facets of his being, both his intention towards us as our Father and his capability to care for us as the one who is in heaven. And the reason I say this is that because when you look at how Jesus uses this language elsewhere in Scripture, when he talks about his Father in heaven, it's often in the context of his ability to carry out his will. Let me give you a few examples. If you look at Matthew 7, verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so, The Father in heaven is the one who has the ability to actually give good gifts. Mark 11, 25. 
When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Who is the one who can forgive? It's the Father in heaven. Or Matthew 18, 19, Truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, the Father in heaven is the one who can give what those who ask in Jesus' name ask for. And so when we pray our Father in heaven, we're professing two things. The first thing we're professing is that we have a Father. We have a Father who is loving, who is generous beyond our imagination, beyond what we could even ask for, who is proactive in seeking our good. And the second thing that we're professing is that he has the ability to carry through on this intention. And this latter part, God's ability to carry through on his intention to be our loving Father, is what distinguishes our Father in heaven from the fathers in Jesus' parables. Because unlike the father in that tragic story who sent his son to his death because of his overconfidence in his reputation, our Father in heaven sent his son to his death knowingly to atone for our sins. And it's because of this that we can address him as our Father, as the one who is in heaven, who can carry through on his good intention. Before we close this morning, I want us to note one last thing about this part of the Lord's Prayer, and that is that this introduction, our Father in heaven, It's not a supplication like the rest of the Lord's Prayer. After we say our Father in heaven, we're going to ask for things. We're going to ask for things like your kingdom come or give us today our daily bread or lead us not into temptation. But here, when we pray our Father in heaven, we're not asking for anything. Jesus is instructing us to say this because this is a reality. This is a truth. We are confessing that we are coming before someone who is the perfect Father, who is in heaven. And friends, there should be nothing more comforting or satisfying or exhilarating than this truth. Because this fact doesn't depend upon our mood. It doesn't depend on our situation or our actions. Whether you're in a good place this morning or whether you're struggling this morning, the reality is that When you confess Jesus as Lord and you pray to our Father in heaven, you are praying to a loving Father who has the ability to carry through on his will. Sometimes we struggle to see how this could be. We don't understand our circumstances. But what Jesus is instructing us to do when we come to our God in prayer is to first set these things aside. He's instructing us that we need to confess up front that despite what we see, despite what we experience, we are coming to our Father in heaven, to the one who is proactive, who is bountiful beyond our imagination. He is all-powerful. He knows and has prepared our future, a good future that is lovely beyond what we can imagine. And so I want to suggest that you try something next time you pray the Lord's Prayer, and that is that after you pray our Father in heaven, then you take a minute and you pause. Before you say anything else, that you pause. You take a minute to savor this truth. You take a minute to let the reality and the weightiness and the glory of this truth to sink in, that you allow it to really frame the rest of your prayer. 
Because what we confess when we pray, our Father in heaven, if we are truly praying that, we are confessing that we are children of the creator of the universe. We are children of the Father who forgives without limit. We are children of the Father who seeks those who are prodigal like us, who provides so much more than we could ever ask for, than that we could ever imagine, like the king did for the prince that we are children of this Father who is preparing a lavish wedding feast. You and I are this child, and he is our Father. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are our God. We thank you that you know us, that you care for us, that you provide for us in ways that we don't even know how to ask for. And Father, we thank you that you are in heaven, that you are the one who can actually carry through on your good intention. We ask that as we come before you corporately and as we come before you individually, that you would remind us of this truth, that we wouldn't rush into prayer and rush into asking for things, but we would take a minute to pause to reflect on who you are, to believe in you, in your goodness towards us, and your ability to carry out your will. For we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.